You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. We are in Romans chapter 9, and we are going to read verses 1 through 13. And why don't you go ahead and stand as we read through this section of Scripture. Paul says, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of the promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children, not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved but Esau I have hated. Let's pray. Lord, here we find ourselves again uh, in Romans 9. Uh, awesome chapter, beautiful chapter. A chapter that's been inspired by the Holy Spirit and is profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and that the man of God may be equipped for the works of righteousness uh, and yet at the same time, a very controversial chapter. And Lord, we just pray for the Holy Spirit, just the one who breathed out this text to be in our midst. And Lord, that today I, I just confess I don't rely upon my wisdom or my knowledge, but Lord, I yield today to, to that spirit, to you to demonstrate yourself in power and to preach and to teach us, Lord. I pray not for man's system or for man's wisdom, but for your word to just, just teach us and commentate on itself in clarity. I just do pray, God, that you just empower me to be a, a faithful servant of your word today and that this church might just be edified through this study. We pray for humility. We pray for wisdom. We pray for big brains, Lord, that could just soak up these amazing truths that will lead us always to worshiping you. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. I know you're wondering if I'd say that. So I encourage you, uh, if you were not here last week, to get online to calvarycrookcounty.com. And uh, listen to last week's study. We did it a little bit in a different format on a different computer, so it wasn't up this week. 
uh, but it will be up this next week. And so I encourage you to uh, listen and to catch up to where we are at so far in Romans chapter 9. And if you're new to the church, man, I just encourage you to get your iPod or your MP3 player and download the series that we've done so far in Romans so that you can just have the whole context of everything that uh, we've been through as we're halfway through the book now. Uh, but here we are finding ourselves continuing on in these controversial chapters of Romans 9 through 11, uh, we're remembering that the debate has gone on for millennia as men try to relieve the pressure and the tension uh, caused by the truths of God's sovereignty and also the truths that we find in scripture of man's responsibility. Uh, and so there is tension concerning these two, what seem to be opposites within the scripture, but tension is not always bad. Those of you that have been to uh, San Francisco, you go across the Golden Gate Bridge and you see that uh, not only are there massive pillars and pylons that have been set down into the water for stability, but there are also wires and cables that are stretched across the bridge to help keep the tension. And when there's no tension, the bridge falls. And so we understand that there's tension in these chapters. We understand and there's tension within the whole of scripture, that there is mystery, that there are hidden things that belong to God, deep things that belong to God. And yet we have been given snippets and glimpses of some of these things in scriptures. And so we want to dive into the deep things of God and we don't have to be afraid of what we'll find. But uh, much as what I've prayed, we don't want to get into man's systems uh, or isms, if you will, whether they be Calvinism or Arminianism or even what seems to be a middle approach, a Molinism. Uh, but we just want to be biblical, right? We want to be Calvarists, right? Just, man, we believe in the cross at Calvary and we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Uh, so there's tension there. I uh, just started a book yesterday by D.A. Carson called God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, biblical perspectives in tension. Uh, and it was fun to read that to my wife as we drove up from Lake Shasta and to her uh, 15-year-old cousin and uh, to try to get to give a mini sermon uh, in our car on the way up. They totally appreciated it. Charles Spurgeon said, as he opened up his uh, sermon on this subject, he says, do not imagine for an instant that I pretend to be able thoroughly to uh, elucidate the great mysteries of predestination. There are some men who claim to know all about the matter. They twist it round their fingers as easily if it were as an everyday thing, but depend upon it. He who thinks he knows all about this mystery knows but very little. It is but the shallowness of his mind that permits him to see the bottom of his knowledge. He who dives deep finds that there is in the lowest depth to which he can attain a deeper depth still. And so the fact is that the great, the great question, <laughs> I have not done my vocal warm-ups yet today, and so <laughs> find myself stumbling. Uh, the fact is that the great questions about man's responsibility and free will and predestination have been fought over and over and over again for really thousands of years and have been answered in 10,000 different ways. And the result has been that we know just as much about the matter as when we first began. Uh, the combatants have thrown dust in each other's eyes and have hindered each other from seeing 
And so when they've concluded, they say, we win just because their opponents can't see anything. D.A. Carson, in this book I started, he says this, I frankly doubt that finite human beings can cut the Gordian knot. At least this finite human being cannot. The sovereignty, responsibility, tension is not a problem to be solved. Rather, it is a framework to be explored. To explore this tension is to explore the nature of God and his ways with man. I like that. I want to just say that again. This tension is not a problem to be solved. Rather, it's a framework to explore. To explore this tension is to explore the nature of God and his ways with men. Spurgeon later on, when he was asked how he reconciles God's sovereignty with man's responsibility, he says, I do not need to reconcile friends. All right, they are friends that we see within scripture. And so as we get into the topics here and at the end of chapter 8 and verse 28 through 30, and then as we've looked in verses 6 through 13 last week and again this week, and then as we go clear through chapter 11 of Romans, we get into the understandings of predestination, um, election, being chosen, uh, and God's foreknowledge. And in all of this, in 9 through 11, the main topic here in these chapters is Israel. Okay, so note that first of all, the main topic in chapters 9 through 11 is Israel. It's not the doctrine of election. Now, just because election isn't the main topic doesn't mean it isn't spoken of here or that it's not covered or that it's unimportant. It is covered, it is spoken of, and it is important. Uh, again, let's quickly look over some of the vocabulary for what we'll be studying, and you find them uh, in verse 28 through 30. Uh, of chapter 8. So just maybe you'll need to turn back one page. Uh, one of our favorite verses, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, so there's a word, he also predestined, there's another word, to be conformed to the image of the Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. And so we see this topic of foreknowledge, uh, that God is omniscient, he knows everything, and he's eternal, therefore he has this foreknowledge to know beforehand, those things that are actual, those things that are possible, those things that are past, present, or future, completely, perfectly, simultaneously, and eternally, God knows it beforehand. As Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5 says, before I formed you, Jeremiah, in the womb, I knew you, before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you as a prophet to the nations. So before Jeremiah had done anything, he'd been called and he'd been sanctified, um, set apart to be a prophet to Israel uh, because of God's sovereignty, because of God's omniscience, because of God's foreknowledge. Um, we also saw in Romans chapter 8 uh, this, this choosing, this calling in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, uh, it's also called election. Uh, we see that, um, as Peter writes, he says, You are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, 
for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so in God's foreknowledge and in his choosing, he elects, he chooses, and we read there, it's according to the foreknowledge of God. But it doesn't just end there. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 and 5 says, just as he chose us in him, okay, so, or you could say, just as he elected us in Jesus before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us or predetermined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. So all this predestining, all this foreknowledge we see here, it's according to the good pleasure of his will. It's to the praise and the glory of his grace by which he's made us accepted into the beloved. So we're seeing different spectrums of uh, what election is according to. Peter says it's according to foreknowledge. Paul says in Ephesians it's according to the good pleasure of his will and that it's to the praise of the glory of his grace. Verse 11 there in Ephesians chapter 1 says, In Jesus, in him also, we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Are you getting the accordings of election here? Uh, that it's according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. We talked about last week in Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 6 through 8. That as God tells the nation of Israel, I've chosen you guys. I've elected you guys. I've loved you guys. And the people would say, well, why? Why have you chosen us? And he just basically, if you just sum it up, he just says, I love you because I've loved you. There you go. The, all the wisdom of man boils down to that. Why? What predestination, foreknowledge. Like, ah. Hey, I've loved you because I've loved you. As I mentioned last week, just a good quote from Alistair Begg to kind of set fears aside. He just says, predestination is a difficult doctrine. It's a biblical doctrine, and it's a profitable doctrine. And as Eric Alexander says, it's not a bomb to be dropped on people, a banner to be marched under, but it's a bastion or a fortress for the souls of those who are in Christ. And so why do we get into this topic here in chapter 9? Well, real quick, go back to chapter 8, and let's look at verses 37 through 38. Paul says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor heights, nor depths, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so here in Romans 8, we finished it up a couple weeks ago. We had this high point, this encouraging spot that nothing can separate us from Jesus. Famine, sword, angels, demons, height, depths, any created thing, um, nothing can separate us. And that's a great promise. Did anybody take comfort in that when they left here about three weeks ago? That's awesome. But then we also know that God had made many promises similar, similar to that uh, to the nation of Israel. And we come to chapter 9 verses 1 through 5 and we see here's a group of people that 
have all sorts of privileges and promises and blessings. I mean, he lists it off there in verses 4 and 5. He says, these guys have the adoption, if you're Israelite, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. So, you know, six things there, or something, my counting was bad. It might have been eight, sorry. Uh, six to eight things that are awesome promises and blessings and privileges. And yet, Paul had just said in verses one through three that the majority of Israelites who had all those promises are in judgment. They're in Hades waiting for judgment to be cast into the lake of fire for all of eternity. And so are the promises of God true? You might ask that. Well, what about Romans 8, you know, that nothing can separate us? Isn't that what was told to Israel? And yet there's a whole, you know, majority of a nation that will be burning in hell for all of eternity. And it brings God's integrity into question here. And we see that question in verse 6 of chapter 9. Is it, it's not that the word of God is taken of no effect the question to that would be, so are the promises of God worthless? Are they vain? Can we really trust chapter 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? The promises of God are called into question. And so we started a three-part study to look at the promises of God, and we only got through one of those parts last week. Maybe you'll remember it. Hopefully you did to some degree. Uh, we look at how the promises of God transcend human expectation last week, okay? And then today, Lord willing, rapture could happen before we end today, you never know. But we're only one service, so we could go on forever this afternoon. Um, I'm kidding. Jeez, you guys are just like tough crowd today. <laughs> so last week, we looked at how the promises of God, they go beyond human expectation. And we'll review real quickly in a minute. Um, but today we want to look at the promises of God. They go beyond human strength or human exertion. And thirdly, the promises of God go beyond human selection. Okay? And so that'll answer a lot of these questions about how can we trust God's promises to Israel um, when, you know, didn't he call the nation to be elect and yet they're going to hell? So what does that do to the gospel? And how can I trust the gospel? So first of all, quick review, God's promise transcends human expectation. What was the expectation? It was that all Israel should be saved automatically just because they came from the loins of Abraham. So that was the expectation. That's where the question really started to come in here. That all Israel should be saved because they came from Abraham. They have the blood of Abraham coursing through their veins. You look at the privileges that they had there in verses 4 and 5. So surely they should be saved automatically. You look at verse 5 and how through this lineage Jesus came. And he's the eternally blessed God. Amen. So how is it that all of Israel isn't just saved because they've got the blood of Abraham in their veins? Well, the answer is at the end of verse 6. Where he says, they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Anyone confused yet? Okay, 
Just massage the temples a little bit. Just get those juices flowing in there, all right? This is genius of Paul to lay it out like this, that they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Not everyone who is physically a descendant of Abraham is actually spiritually Israel. He explains the reality of two Israels here from this through verse 13, where we're going to end today. There's a spiritual Israeli and there's a Israeli and there is a physical Israel, Israeli, and the distinction is very important, okay? Uh, because of if belonging to physical Israel, the ethnic line itself is what saves you and gets you to heaven, then the gospel's false, right? Verses or chapters one through eight are all lies because that message has been we're not saved by works, we're not saved by bloodline, we're not saved by heritage, we're not saved because we're Americans, but we're saved by God's grace through faith and trusting in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And so if it was by blood, then everything that Paul has said so far has been a lie and the gospel's not true. And so he uh, acknowledges that there's an ethnic people Israel, but he also acknowledges that not all that ethnic people Israel is Israel, that there's actually a spiritual Israel here. And he's referring to a group that is Israel, not Gentiles replacing Israel, but an actual group that is Israel, that they're spiritually messianic Jews. There's a remnant, and you see that word used in verse 27 of chapter 9, and then over in chapter 11, verse 5, he says that there's a remnant, and that's a phrase common in the Old Testament. Does anybody remember when Elijah the prophet thought that he was the only guy that loved God still? And he'd march around the desert, and he'd say, I alone am left among the prophets of God. They've killed everybody else, and he was so discouraged. And the Lord says, you don't know that I've got some, you know, hundred prophets hidden in a cave and Obadiah is feeding them right now. There's a remnant. And Israel understood that and the readers of Romans would understand that. Sometimes we need to understand that. You feel like you alone are left and God's saying, hey, there's a remnant that's loving Jesus and following Jesus. But we studied a lot of this last week, and so we're not going to dive into it in depth. Just know that not all Israel is Israel. Uh, there's a nation of Israel ethnically. They've rejected Jesus as the Messiah. They're going to hell. And God in his sovereignty, by the time we get to chapter 11, we're going to see that one day this remnant of Israel will be saved. Um, but also... He's going to use two examples from the Old Testament here to prove his point. That there's physical Israel and there's spiritual Israel. There's a duality. Now, I know that this is, uh, let's just be honest. I know that this is like over a lot of your head, okay? This is, where, this is some deep stuff. This is chapters 9 through 11 of Romans. We've had some good fun, easy going, you know? Uh, and now we're at just a spot where we're getting into some deep stuff. Don't feel bad if you don't totally get it. We'd love to sit down with some of you guys and walk you through it, uh, those that are um, not understanding at all. But it is, it is deep stuff, and it's specifically dealing with 
the nation of Israel here at this point. So you definitely want to have a little bit of Israeli history under your belt as you come to these chapters. And so real quickly, uh, let's look at that. Genesis 22, 17 and 18, we have God's promise to Abraham. And he says to Abraham, blessing, I will bless you and multiplying, I will multiply you. Your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as of the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. Okay? So this is a promise given to Israel. A guy that was uh, about 90 years old. His wife was 80 years old. And they were promised that their, their kids were going to populate the earth like the sand on the seashore. But they, Sarah was barren. They had no kids, and this promise seemed like, you know, a bit moot, you know, that God was making it. Now, Abraham believed the promise, and it says there in chapter 15 that that belief was accounted to him as righteousness, and yet immediately he went off and tried to take matters into his own hands. Sarah heard the promise and said, this is silly, I'm barren, you know, Uh, none of us are working here, you know, and so here, go into my maid, Hagar, and have a baby with her. And then, then your seed will multiply the earth, you know. It's even a miracle that he was able to have a baby with Hagar. He's still 90 years old. But he did. He had a baby. They named this cute little guy Ishmael. Um, and, and so they bring Ishmael before God and say, God, now it'll work. We have a child. He says, no. This isn't the son of promise. The promise was between you and Sarah. And so he says, in a year from now, and this is the promise that we read in uh, verse 9. A year from now, Sarah will have a baby. His name will be Isaac. And it's through Isaac that all the nations of the world will be blessed. Okay, so Isaac is the first example. Uh, Verse 7. Everybody there? Verse 7. Where it says, nor are they all children because they're the seed of Abraham, but it's in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as seed. And we looked at this last week, so we're in a little bit of review still. Okay, And to see that, Paul's making his point that not everybody who's of the seed of Abraham is part of the promise. He uses Isaac and Ishmael as a picture. It's in, it's in Isaac, not Ishmael, verse 7 says that the seed shall be called. Uh, that those that are the promise, those are the ones that are counted as the seed. As N.T. Wright said, that what counts is grace here, not race. And that's really the whole point right here. It's God's grace, his gracious choosing, his gracious election within the nation of Israel. That salvation is not a birthright. No one deserves God's saving purpose. But what do we deserve? Anybody know here from our studies so far? We deserve judgment. We deserve hell. Okay? It's only God's grace that we would be saved. It's not a right. It's not a birthright. Okay. So, um, and we see that throughout John eight, we looked at that last week, John one, Luke three, eight, where the Pharisees would say, Hey, we are children of Abraham. We don't need a savior. And John the Baptist would say, 
Don't even think about saying we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these stones. So really how important is race in the grand scheme of things? It's not that important. What matters is faith. As Romans chapter 2 verse 25 through 29, we closed with this last week. Um, where we see that circumcision is profitable if you keep the law in Romans 2. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law. And then listen to this. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not for men, but from God. Okay. God's promises transcend humans' expectations that everyone who's of the seed of Abraham should be saved, should not be in hell. Okay, that's man's expectations. God promises go far beyond that. And God says in Romans chapter 2, I look at the heart. I look at the heart. I look at those who've been circumcised, not outwardly in the flesh, but in the heart. Have you had the Holy Spirit come in and trim away the flesh of your heart? Have you been born again? Have you been like your father Abraham who believed on me and it was accounted to him for righteousness? Or have you made an Ishmael? Are you trying to make an Ishmael salvation take place? And so that's all a bit of review of how the promises of God transcend human expectations. And now we come to part two. The promise of God transcends human power and effort and exertion. So what is emphasized here? That God's power is bigger than human might and human effort. We've got supernatural ability over natural ability. You remember when God told Abraham and Sarah that you're going to have a baby, that Sarah laughed at the promise of God. But God basically says through fulfilling the promise, it's not about you, Sarah. It's not about your age. It's not about the functioning of your ovaries. It's about me. I'm the creator. I'm God. I'm sovereign. I make promises that I can keep. And in the context of Romans 9, you look at salvation and how it's not natural. It's not a birthright, but it's supernatural. Has nothing to do with us in our flesh, but actually it's in spite of us. So often the promises of God seem impossible because we're only looking at them through the lens of human ability. You guys remember when the angel came to Mary and and spoke to her and said that she would have the Messiah. And her response was, I'm a virgin. I don't know a man. You look at Luke 1, 34 through 37. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who's to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month who, 
for her who was called barren, for with God, nothing will be impossible. So I'm a virgin. I've never known a man. I'm just engaged. How am I going to be pregnant right now? And God says, hey, with God, it's possible. Your, your cousin Elizabeth is barren and she's got a baby right now. She's about to give birth. And he says, it's not about your exertion, your power, your strength. It's about my promise. Remember when God told Moses that he was to go to speak to Pharaoh and Moses says, God, I can't speak very well. And God said, okay, I guess I'll pick someone else. You're just so weak. No, he says, I made your mouth. I made your mouth. It's not about you. It's about me and my power. And every one of us here, we're called to live an impossible life. Everything in our life is impossible apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the genius of the gospel. We're confronted and humbled by our inability. And then we're able to respond to the power and the grace to be obedient. His promise produces faith and obedience. And so this promise, this promise of salvation, this promise that goes beyond the natural is fulfilled at the word of the promise in verse nine. At this time, I will come and Sarah shall have a son. So stop laughing. It's not about you. That's the point of Romans nine. It's not about you. And not only this, verse 10, but when Rebecca also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac. And so real quick, let's take a pause. We're on point three already. Point two is pretty quick, right? Point three, God's promise transcends human selection. So people might object to Paul's using example of Ishmael and Isaac because you know, well, you know, Ishmael had a different mom. He had Hagar. So of course you wouldn't choose and elect Ishmael. He had a different mom. Um, and so it was through Isaac because, um, because it was through Sarah, okay? Um, but he addresses that here. He narrows it down to a narrower playing field to the same dad, the same mom, in the same womb, by the same sperm, on the same day, one of the boys is elected to carry on the promise of the covenant and one of the boys wasn't. God's sovereignty in election. It transcends human selection. Tune in closer, verse 11. For the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. In chapters, or in verses 10 through 12 here, Paul's main point is that the choice is based upon God's calling, not human selection. And the election of Israel, the spiritual Israel, becomes more sure through God's election of Jacob instead of the older brother Esau. And we read here that it's not according to works. It's not according to works. What does that mean? Well, it means the same thing that's meant in the whole rest of the book of Romans. Works speaks of human merit, stuff that man earns, human activity. But we see that with Esau and Jacob, this selection, this election had taken place before they had done anything good or bad. 
And so God was not contingent upon that, not totally contingent upon that. So God's election, God's drawing of Israel was not based on human merit, but rather his good pleasure. Now, this is where it just gets really dramatic for all of us, okay? When we start reading about Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated, and we're talking about election, and we're talking about predestination, and we all start sweating and gripping something in our seats really hard so that we can just hope Rory will shut up and say amen and we can get out of here. We got to continue. We got to press on, right? Uh, we got to know that God is dealing here with guilty people all across the board. Okay? Jacob is inherently a sinner on his way to hell. Esau is inherently a sinner on his way to hell. Neither one of these guys were morally neutral people. God didn't look at Jacob, who was cuter than Esau, through the doctrine of irresistible cuteness. He looks at Jacob and says, oh, you're not as hairy as Esau. I choose you. That's not grace. And we might say, well, Esau was a worldly man and he traded his birthright. Well, have you ever read about Jacob? A deceiver, heel catcher? You know, his whole life was about being shifty and manipulating things. And even when he leaves his parents' house, and he runs away because he stole his brother's birthright. His first night out camping by himself, he has a vision from God where the ladder comes down and angels are descending and ascending on the ladder up to the throne of God. And God promises that he will bless this place. He would bless Jacob. And then Jacob wakes up and starts trying to manipulate this new covenant and say, well, if I do this and this, then you'll do this. And that wasn't the basis of God's promise. It's always, it's always, always our default to go back to something that we can do. Works, heritage, lineage, we're proud to be Americans, you name it, it's about us, it's about our might, it's about our strength, it's about our breeding, whatever. It's not. It's about God and his sovereign grace. Now, Grace is the central factor here, but we don't want to misunderstand in all the Bible, it never mitigates human responsibility. It never makes human responsibility less important or less severe. Man is responsible. Man is accountable. God holds people accountable. He judges people. He says, you ought not do that, and you should do this, and you must believe. There's nothing that mitigates man's responsibility in scripture. And at the same time, God is not totally contingent upon man's responsibility. Brings up a lot of questions. We're going to deal with it in the weeks to come. But just remember, across the board, we're dealing about sinning people and everybody deserves hell. It's about grace here, not about race. It's about grace here, not about works. As Stott says, it was clear that God's decision to choose Jacob had nothing to do with any eligibility in the boys themselves, for there was nothing to distinguish them 
from one another. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter seven, verses six through eight. God says, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all the peoples, but because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers. And so in this speaking, this is what I was referring to of why, why do you love us? Well, I didn't choose you because you were more in numbers, but you're the least of all the people. I chose you because I love you and I will keep the oath he swore to your fathers. He chose Israel. He's sovereign. He's creator. We're going to study in the weeks to come. He has the right to do it. He has creator rights. And so he chose Jacob over Esau. Verse 12, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger as it's written, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I've hated. Stott also says this statement sounds shocking in Christians' ears and cannot possibly be taken literally. That God hated Esau. The focus of this verse is not intended to be on the words Esau I have hated, but rather the focus should be, when we understand the gospel, the focus should be on Jacob I have loved, okay? So we all read verse 13, Jacob I've loved, and Esau I have hated. Oh, he hated Esau. No, this is what we should be like. As it is written, Jacob I have loved. Oh, he loved Esau. Okay? Because Esau's a sinner. Esau's the heel catcher. He's the deceiver. It's grace that he's even chosen. Forget the part about Esau I've hated for a moment. It's totally grace that God even chose or loved Jacob. Spurgeon once said that the difficulty of Romans 9.13 is not that God hated Esau, but rather that he loved Jacob. The marvel of this verse is not in God's rejection, but rather in that he, being a holy and righteous God, chose any man at all, ever. You guys get that? You guys understanding the gospel, the gospel of grace, the gospel that's not according to works, the gospel that's not according to heritage? Are you getting it? God chose Jacob because he's gracious because he's gracious. This quote here is it's written, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. Uh, it's from Malachi chapter one, verses two, and, uh, verses two through four. The context of the chapter of Malachi chapter one is it's not the individual uh, Jacob and it's not the individual Esau um, but that it's speaking to the nations that came out of them, the nations that they fathered. So Jacob fathered the nation of Israel. And I almost said it. Esau followed the nation of 
Edom, okay? The Edomites, okay? Now, that's just the case. That's just the context of Malachi chapter 1 is that it's national, and everybody agrees with that, okay? Um, but then you get into the context of chapter 9 of Romans, and you start getting various opinions and various points of view, and I'm just going to kind of give them to you, and you are all sensible people, and you have Bibles on your own, and you can decide for yourself, okay? A um, couple different views. Camp A, that this choosing of Jacob, that this rejecting, or excuse me, hating of Esau is a national corporate application, okay? So this is the first side of things. Camp A believes that this refers less to the individuals themselves being chosen or hated, loved or hated, and more to the nations that they have fathered. Some would say he's not speaking of individual Jacob or Esau here, but the nation Israel and the nation of Edom after they had lived and done evil things and tried to kill off Israel. We're speaking of Edom here for a second. And he tried to detour, uh, Edom tried to detour Israel from becoming God's redemptive people and that he's speaking to the nation there. there. Um, and so in context of Malachi, Jacob is representing Israel. Esau is representing Edom. And so the emphasis would say, Camp A would say that this verse is that God has elected Israel as his chosen nation, as an as a ornament, as a display of his love for Israel. Okay? Um, Douglas Moo says this. The corporate interpretation, corporate nature of election for the purpose of bringing in the eternal Savior. God's love for Jacob then refers to God's election of the people Israel, not of individuals. And his hatred of Esau, correspondingly, will denote his rejection of the nation of Edom. It is further alleged that election here must not be election to salvation, but election to a special and honored role in salvation history. Moo goes on to say, it is election to privilege that is in mind, not eternal salvation. Okay? So, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. What is it speaking of? Some would say that it's, it's uh, election for the nation to have a special and honored role in salvation history. Okay? Um, can't be. Camp B believes that individuals' salvation is referred to here. Not national, but individual. Uh, as Moo goes on to say, advocates of the corporate national interpretation make a strong case. In the Old Testament, God's election is primarily his calling out of a people for his own name, uh, Israel. Nevertheless, for all of its strong points, I think that a corporate... And salvation, historical interpretation, does not ultimately satisfy the data of the text where you have words like election and call and not of works. These are all words that are difficult to apply to whole nations, okay? So, Camp A believes that it's just talking about nations here, blessings and privileges, 
Um, Camp B would say that it is speaking of individuals, and it's speaking of individual salvation. Jacob, I chose for salvation. Esau, I've hated and chosen for judgment. Go home and read your Bibles. Now, let's look just for a second at Esau, I have hated. Um, according to the context, love and hate here are not emotions, uh, but they're actions, okay? Uh, we use the term love for a lot of different things. I love my wife. I love you. I love ice cream, okay? Um, but they don't always mean the exact same thing. And here, in the context, it speaks of God's electing, choosing Love. In this case, we love what we choose and we hate what we don't choose. I want the beef. I hate the chicken. Amen? Amen. We're in Prineville. Okay. No, I'm kidding. Uh, it has to do, love has to do here with the Hebrew idiom. An idiom means that the Hebrews would read it and they would totally get it because it's part of their language. It's how they talk. Love and hate have to do with preference and selection, okay? So love equals I select, hate equals I did not select, okay? Uh, here's Moo again. If God's love of Jacob consists of his choosing Jacob to be the seed who would inherit the blessings of the promises of Abraham, then God's hatred of Esau is best understood to refer to God's decision not to bestow this privilege on Esau. It might be best translated, reject. Love and hate are not here then emotions that God feels but actions that he carries out, okay? So love and hate are not emotions that God feels, but rather actions that he carries out. An example from the New Testament, Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple, so Jesus uses the word hate there, and he says, hate your mom, hate your dad, hate your children, hate your brothers, hate your sisters. And we've looked at this text, and we know that Jesus is not calling us to give our mom and dad a ring and say, mom, I hate you, slam. Don't do that. Your mom's already disappointed enough with you right now, okay? <laughs> you ignored her, and you moved to Prineville. But what it speaks of is that our love for Jesus must be preferred above everything else. It has to be selected. It has to do with selection here. Now, is there such a thing as holy hatred? Yes. God hates sin. And everyone who has not been redeemed from sin is guilty and condemned, all inclusively, we're all under God's wrath. We are under his hot displeasure, but by grace. That as you would hear the call, as you would hear the gospel, that God has brought you to this room right now to tell you that it is not of your works, it is not of your heritage, it is not of your 
choice of career in life. It's not of your physical beauty or appearance that you would be saved and forgiven of sins and and given entrance into paradise to be with God for all eternity, but it's by grace, it's by his free gift, it's by his sacrifice and you resting upon his sacrifice and what he has done, not what you have done. And that if you would rest and believe upon his work on the cross and his work in the grave when he rose from the dead, you will be saved. Saved from yourself, saved from sin, saved from the consequences of sin, which are hell, and saved towards eternal life, fellowship with God restored. And if you would believe, you would be saved. You would be blessed. Esau's descendants were still blessed. He became a nation. He was very wealthy. Jacob was terrified to come against him in the wilderness. But we see that his nation is no longer. His nation is no more. In fact, later on in his history, Edom uh, would have to pay tribute to Israel. But where's Israel today? Still a lot. Still thriving. Still a nation. Real quick, Genesis 29, 29. We are almost done. I promise. So just relax a little bit. Genesis 29, 29. We read of Jacob. It says, Laban, Jacob's uncle, gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as a maid. Then Jacob also went into Rachel, and he also loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Laban still another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, anyone here have a King James version? What's it say? When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So many different perspectives on all this. Guys. I've been reading... Calvinist, Arminianist, Molinist, read and read, uh, okay? That's how I feel right now. So sorry if it's all a little jumbled, okay? There are so many, and it's so funny because guys will just come back, totally agree with each other. And then they kind of go back on little tangents. Well, yeah, okay, you know? And, and it's, just, it's just, we just love Jesus, right? <laughs> we just want to know him more. But uh, just interesting to read Charles Spurgeon's sermon uh, here from Romans 9 this morning. And, uh, you know, you got Stott, who's just a very well-respected, reformed pastor, has one of the best commentaries on Roman. You've got Moo, you know. You got Stott, who I read earlier, who said, you cannot possibly read this, that God hates Esau. And then you've got Spurgeon this morning, who's like, there is no other way to read it. That God loves Jacob because of grace, and he hates Esau but not because of sovereign election, but because Esau heaped up for himself wrath due to wickedness. There's just so much. There's so much to dive into. I encourage you to get online. Google Spurgeon, uh, Jacob and Esau. It'll pop up there and you can read it. But in a couple other instances, we've got Jesus saying hatred in the sense of relationships with mother and father and selecting Jesus over them. We've got Genesis of Jacob selecting Rachel more than Leah and that uh, Leah is hated there. <clears throat> and it dives into the question, did God then 
choose Esau for hell before he created him. It's called double predestination. That's very controversial. And uh, we want to look at just a real quote, quick quote from Spurgeon here. Do you believe that God created man and arbitrarily, sovereignly, it's the same thing, created that man with no other intention than that of damning him, made him and yet for no other reason than that of destroying him forever? Well, if you can believe it, I pity you. That is all I can say. You deserve pity that you should think so mean, uh, so meanly of God, whose mercy endures forever. You are quite right when you say the reason why God loves a man is because God does do so. There is no reason in the man. But do not give the same answer as to why God hates a man. If God deals with any man severely, it's because that man deserves all he gets. In hell, there will be not a solitary soul that will say to God, O Lord, thou hast treated me worse than I deserve. But every lost spirit will be made to feel that he has got his deserts that his destruction lies at his own door and not at the door of God, that God had nothing to do with his condemnation except as the judge condemns the criminal, but that he himself brought damnation upon his own head as the result of his own evil works. Justice is that which damns a man. It is mercy, it is free grace that saves. Sovereignty holds the scale of love. It is justice that holds the other scale. And so as we get into verses 14 through about 25, we'll look at that. We'll look at the thoughts of double predestination and did God create Pharaoh uh, just so Pharaoh could go to hell. Um, we'll do a whole bunch of review. But in conclusion today, what we've looked at is that spiritual Israel, God's choosing of spiritual Israel transcends humans' expectations, it transcends humans' ability, and human selection, okay? The expectation was that all Israel would be saved, the ability was that Sarah should be able in and of herself to give birth, and the selection was that Esau should rule over Jacob when it was really vice versa. And all of this we have fulfilled in Jesus, we have it all fulfilled in Jesus, in the person and the work of Jesus. He is the true seed of Abraham. He is the true son of David. He is the true and faithful Israelite. He fulfilled all that Israel is supposed to be. Because he fulfilled it, and it's received on the condition of faith, now the Gentiles can come in because he has fulfilled what Israel was not able to do. He transcended human expectation. Did he come as a prince on a white horse, like everybody expected? Or did he come born in a barn? You know, poor, the son of a carpenter. As Isaiah 53 says, he wasn't beautiful that we should desire him. He transcended human expectation. He transcended human power and exertion and ability. His birth was physical and supernatural at the same time. He was the son of David, but he was also the son of the Holy Spirit. 
And thirdly, he transcended human selection. Remember when he stood before his accusers and man was rejecting him by saying, we choose Barabbas. We choose the murderer. We choose the criminal. You can have this king of the Jews. And Jesus says, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down. And so our salvation, when we look at Romans 9, we can flip to the opposite spectrum. It, it transcends human expectation, exertion, and selection. So much to go over. It's funny, you know, in the elders, we have hard things to discuss in elders meetings. And, you know, for hours, we'll dive in and wrestle and talk and discuss. And we're sweating and we're turning red. <clears throat> we finally, at the end of the meeting, lean back in our chairs and go, <sighs> <laughs> Kevin started it. Um, <laughs> you know, we just love each other and we wrestle through things and we look at the word and we agree on things and we don't, you know, 100% agree on everything, but we love each other. And we're just rather, we just realize, gosh, there's mystery and we're just growing. And that's what we're going to do as a church. You know, we're just going to grow. We're going to read through the text and we're going to let the word speak for itself. And uh, we're not going to take ourselves too seriously, okay? But we will take God seriously. You guys ready to do communion? All right, let's pray. We'll have the worship team come on up. Lord, we just trust that as your word has gone forth, uh, that your spirit has spoken to us and we realize that just as we've looked to wise men to help explain and comment on the text and help us understand, Lord, that, that those were just men. Um, the best men are men at best. And, and, uh, and so we just pray that your spirit would filter and that your spirit would um, just plant the truths of encouragement in our heart, that uh, predestination and election, uh, that these can actually be fortresses to run into. And Lord, we know that election, it's really a family language. We as Christians can speak to one another and call one another elect, but we can't look out into the world and say, that guy's not elect. He never will be. And Lord, you call us to be evangelists. You call us to be missionaries. You call us to herald and declare the good news of the gospel. And so Lord, we cry out with D.L. Moody, Lord, save the elect and then elect some more. We pray that you would save Prineville, Lord. Lord, we pray that you would save the cowboys and the cowgirls that are in town for the rodeo, Lord. Lord, that you would give us opportunity to share the gospel with them. We pray that you would save the workers at Facebook and the construction workers that will come into town to work at the Apple facility. We pray that you would save the men and women at Woodgrain, Lord. We pray that you would save the people at Ray's and at the Video Hut, God, and at the Cinnabar. Save, Lord. Let your spirit just go forth and
Lord, we thank you that you have chosen us and those that have put your faith in, uh, those that have put our faith in you, Lord, we can say thank you for choosing us and we can say we don't know why you chose us. We know it wasn't our family line. We know it wasn't our athletic ability. We know it wasn't our brute strength to really good, be, be good people. But Lord, we can say we don't know except that we know it was grace. It was grace. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Give us minds that can understand all these things, Lord. Let us be faithful to the text as we discuss and as we have home groups and as we go home and just talk about the message. And Lord, as we come to the communion table, we think of the cross. Think of uh, just the son of God whose flesh was broken and pierced and stripped and whipped and bruised and beaten and beard plucked out and crown of thorns pressed in and he was mocked. We think of the cross where the nails just went into just the nerves in the wrist and the feet and the spear that pierced the side and Lord, we don't know why you would do that for us, but grace. And Lord, because you first loved us, we love you, Lord. Because you've initiated reconciliation by grace, Lord, we want to be reconciled. Because your spirit has brought us here, even on one of the most difficult chapters in the scripture, and you've told us about this free salvation that's only found in what you've done. Because you've drawn us here and graciously spoken to us today, we want to respond and surrender our lives to you as our Lord and as our Savior. We lay down everything that we would bring to the table as if it would merit us some favor with you. And Lord, we pick up the righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, that you would see us through the lens of the cross as never having sinned before. We worship you and we praise you for your election, for your sovereignty, for your omniscience, for your foreknowledge, for the predestination, Lord. And we worship you in communion right now. Just right now where you're at today, if you've for the first time placed your faith in Jesus and rested in what he's done on the cross, that your sins might be forgiven you, you can join us today in communion. And just one of your first acts of worship today can be taking the cup and the bread and thanking Jesus for his broken body and his shed blood. And you can just say, Lord, come into me. Come into me. Just like this cup and bread are coming into me. Come in, saturate me, consume me, Lord. Let's worship the Lord through communion.
You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.